Seems like we have more boys going out today than normal. I leave for a week and we got a bunch of boys in the church. Amen for that. Got to do something to counterbalance all my girls that I've brought here. I want to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to continue working verse by verse through this uh, epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy just as Paul was nearing the end of his life. He's in jail. He's most likely been sentenced. He's awaiting execution, and he's writing one last time to encourage his young mentee in the faith to continue to press forward and to follow in his footsteps in the work of the gospel. This week was a big deal in the history of our nation, really the history of the world. 75 years ago, on June 6, 1944, As you surely saw this week, more than 160,000 Allied troops landed along a 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified French coastline to fight Nazi Germany on the beaches of Normandy, France. General Dwight Eisenhower called the operation a crusade in which, and I quote, we will accept nothing less than full victory. More than 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircraft, supported the D-Day invasion, and by the day's end, the Allies gained a foothold in continental Europe. The cost in lives on D-Day was high. More than 9,000 lives were lost, killed or wounded by the sacrifice allowed. More than 100,000 soldiers to begin that slow, hard slog across Europe, ultimately leading to the defeat of Adolf Hitler's troops. When you think about D-Day, and you saw, I'm surely on TV, all the recognition and the ceremony this past week, and you think about World War II and lives that were lost, expense that was paid, leads to a question. What was it that caused us as a nation to enter a war that was being fought thousands of, of miles away from us? You see, World War II officially began in 1939 when Germany invaded the nation of Poland. In the first two years of the war, America remained politically neutral. But then President Roosevelt was working hard to prepare the Americans for what he regarded to be an inevitable conflict. The president understood this is a fight we will most likely be in. He felt that the war was threatening U.S. security. and he, So he tried to find ways to help the European allies of our nation without formally being involved in the war. President Roosevelt persuaded Congress in November of 1939 to repeal the arms embargoes that were part of the neutrality law and to pass the Fourth Neutrality Act, which allowed him to trade arms with countries whose defense he would seem to be vital to the security of our own nation. The U.S. would also provide its Air Force and Navy to escort British convoys that transported supplies leased from America to protect them from enemy submarines. The U.S. military was also deployed to replace British forces in Iceland after the British invasion there. Along with that, in coordination with Dutch and British forces, the U.S. was running a very successful oil embargo against Imperial Japan. At that time, the Japanese were advancing on China and French Indochina. And because of that, and because of their loss of oil, in fact, Japan was importing 90% or more of their own oil, they became desperate. Japan had to, deduce, had to do something to get out from underneath the oil embargo. And so the lack of oil threatened to end all of their efforts, and they continued to refuse our appeal and our demand for them to, uh, to stop fighting China. And so the Japanese decided that the only solution for them was to strike America first. And so our isolation as a nation from the war ended on December 7th, 1941. As you know, Japan on that day bombed Pearl Harbor, our major naval installation there in the Pacific. And so the most devastating strike, which they had several strikes, but the most devastating was at Pearl Harbor. There, our Pacific fleet was moored. And so in that two-hour attack, Japanese warplanes sank or damaged 18 warships, destroyed 164 of our aircraft, and 2,400-plus servicemen and civilians lost their lives. And so on December 8, 1941, after two years of trying to remain neutral and to be isolated from the war that was on two different continents, America entered World War II. Only one member of Congress dissented in the vote to declare war upon Japan. 
Three days later, Germany and Italy, who were allied with Japan, declared war on the United States. And so America, it was now drawn into a global war. This global war was a fight for a way of life. It was a fight over ideology. The U.S. and its allies were fighting to defend against the tyranny of communism and fascism being spread by Hitler, Mussolini, and Imperial Japan. The Allied forces were guarding the good deposit that was threatened by these aggressors. D-Day, which we celebrated 75 years this past week, finally gave the Allies the foothold needed in Europe to begin pushing back the front lines of the enemy. Fight was obviously not without its share of sacrifice. Americans, many of the greatest generation that have passed, had to embrace the reality of the war. They were in it. Everybody was in the war. There was no going back. Everyone, military personnel and civilian alike, was forced to endure in the work of the war. President Roosevelt, in his famous speech there on December 8th, 1941, said, and I quote, No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people, in their righteous might, will win through to absolute victory. End of quote. American business, labor, and farmers all joined together to produce the goods and the materials needed to support the millions of men being drafted into the military. Moms and dads who had to watch their sons step on board a train to then travel to the front lines of the battlefield. The next morning, had to get up and head off to work. Working in the factories and working in the fields across this land, they emulated the vigilance of the servicemen and women as America guarded the deposit given to them by its founding fathers. This rich history that we've been privy to this past week brings us to our text this morning. The Apostle Paul was reminding Timothy of the great deposits that have, made, have been made in his life, and we've looked at these. Paul there in verses 3 and 4 talk about, 3, 4, and 5 talk about this incredible deposit of a mentor in a believer's life and how Paul was this, this mentor's deposit in, in Timothy's life. Then he went on to talk about how... That Timothy had grown up in a godly home and he had a godly mom and a godly grandma who pointed him to Jesus, taught him the word of God. And, and that was a deposit in his life. Verses 6 and 7, he points out how the Holy Spirit, as a follower of Jesus, has been planted in his life. And he is the one who enables Timothy to, to live this life for Jesus and to live for the glory of God. And now in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul's going to charge Timothy to guard this deposit. Look with me in verse 8. We're going to read through verse 14 this morning. Paul says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we look at these verses this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and help us to see all that we have in Jesus, all that you've called us to in Jesus, and all that you will do for us on behalf of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to where we need to be today. Help us to behold your glory. Help us to behold your beauty. God, help us to be enraptured in this wonderful thing called the gospel that has absolutely changed our lives. And Father, I pray for those who have never been transformed by the life-giving blood of Jesus, that today would be the salvation for them, that today they would meet their creator, and he would become their redeemer. Bless us. Speak to us in your word. Open our hearts in Jesus' name. 
Amen. If you don't know it, I'm going to inform you this morning, but the world in which we live has been, it is, and it forever will be hostile to the things of God, to the Word of God, and to the person of God. It's hostile toward Christ. It's hostile toward Christ's followers. You see, the message of the gospel in our culture and in cultures past, and it will be true in cultures in the future, is marginalized and it is maligned. Anyone who dares to believe what the Bible declares is regarded today as narrow-minded and a half-wit. You think that's not true? Then go on public television and begin to proclaim that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you've been washed in the blood. They would, the, 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 the typical person in our culture, the atheist, the secularist, they, if they came in this morning and sat in these pews and sang the songs that we've sung this morning, they would think that we are nuts. What have we sung about today? We've sung about the blood. We've sung about how the blood washes us, and, and they would probably look at us and think, you guys are crazy. It's like you want to sit here with blood all over you. Absolutely, I want to sit here with blood all over me. I want the blood of Jesus on me because it's the only thing the Bible says that can wash my sins away, that can cleanse me from the iniquity within my heart. So they would look at us and say, that's narrow. That's foolish. You see, the preaching of the cross was foolishness to the Greek mind in the days of Paul. And it's the same today in our own culture. And so Timothy here was instructed by Paul to guard this good deposit in his life. This instruction was true for him, and it's true for us today. We must guard this deposit. But how? I want to give you three things this morning. I'm going to try to unpack these as quickly as I can, but you know I've missed last Sunday, and as typical, when I miss a Sunday, I try to make up for that Sunday and preach two sermons in one, but I promise I'm going to try not to do that today. But this is a rich passage of Scripture, and I'm excited to be able to to expound it to you and unpack it for us this morning, and so I want to share with you three things that we need to do, three things that we need to embrace in our lives, that we need to bring into our lives in order to guard this Deposits. How do we guard the deposit of the gospel within us? Number one, embrace the message of the gospel. We need to embrace the message of the gospel. Look there, the first part of verse 8. Therefore, remember, just textually, you know this, but anytime you see a therefore in the Scriptures, you just need to ask the question, what's it there for? It's a connecting type of word. And so Paul's saying this, therefore, based upon everything that I've already told you about the, the deposit of a godly mentor in your life, the deposit of a godly parent in your life, the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life, as a follower of Jesus, now, in light of everything, this is how you're to exercise this and live this out in your life. Therefore, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the Lord or of me. Picture Timothy here in the tough city of Ephesus, a city where there are competing religious systems. There are competing worldviews in this very metropolitan city. Ephesus was a city that was full of idols, and according to Acts chapter 19, after Paul being there preaching the gospel for over two years, there was a riot that broke out all over as a result of Paul's ministry and him proclaiming Jesus as the Lord and the Savior, the name above every name, the name that every knee should bow and confess him as Christ and him as Lord. Like those in Corinth, there were those in Ephesus who believed the cross was nothing more than foolishness. In fact, there was not just outside the church, within the church, there were some who would look at Paul and they would see his struggles and his his difficulties. They would see that he was shipwrecked and beaten and ran out of town and and all these hardships that that he's endured. They would look at him and say, this guy is a fool. This guy is obviously not filled with the Holy Spirit because how could a follower of God, how could someone who possesses the, the Spirit of God go through this hardship? How could he be in prison today? This is nothing more than public proof that the Holy Spirit was not within Paul, according to them. Similar to some today, they believe that when the Spirit is present in a person's life, all difficulties will be evaporated. That is a lie from hell. If that's true, and I've said this before, if that's true, then God needs to apologize to many people within the Bible. Job probably being the first and foremost. Jesus being right there. No, the truth is, when we follow God just because we're a Christ follower, doesn't exempt us from hardships. 
many times it means we have the hardships. So Paul's instruction was for Timothy to not be ashamed of the message or of the messenger, that of Paul. But instead he was to embrace both of them. Look at what Paul says about the message of the gospel. Again, verse 8, the first part. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now skip down with me to verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul gives us a threefold description of the gospel here. First of all, he shows us that God saves us. God saves us. What is salvation? Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is not something that you conjure up. Salvation is not something you work toward. Salvation is not something that you earn with good merit and favor and doing enough good things. And Salvation is not waiting to the end and, and you hope that your good outweighs your bad and somehow you can kind of tip the scales to your favor. No, that's not what salvation is. Jonah said in Jonah 2.9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, in God's sovereign grace, he is the one who rescues sinners from their awful condition, and he places them in his kingdom forever. That's what Paul says here. It's God who saves us. The mere fact that he says that God is the one who saves us precipitates the, the necessity for the fact that we need salvation. We are lost. Here's a, here's a term that we need to recapture in the American church, in the Southern Baptist church. People who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ are lost. They're lost. They're on their way to hell. You were lost. If you know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, if you're headed to heaven, there was a time in your life when you were lost. You were spiritually blind. You were spiritually dead, cut off from the friendship and the fellowship and the kingdom of God. But God came to you in his sovereignty, and he drew, him, drew you to himself. Salvation is the work of God. It's not the work of man. Secondly, he describes the gospel as not only God saving us, but God is the one who sanctifies us. God sanctifies us. Look what he says. He saves us and he calls us to a holy calling. You see, in salvation, God is the one who calls us to holiness. He doesn't redeem you. He doesn't save you. He doesn't change your life so that you can continue to live in the same sin that you lived in before. He doesn't drag you out of the muck and the mire to clean you up just so that you go back in that. Now, do we fall into that sometimes? Absolutely. But we're not to live in that anymore. There's to be a distinct difference in our lives. There's to be something that's contrary to the life that we once had. You say, I was pretty good. I didn't drink or chew or hang out with those who do. Well, goody for you. You still were a sinner, lost. You're probably self-righteous, think you're better and everything. Sin looks different for every single person. Some may be the prostitute. Some may be the drug dealer. Some may be a con artist. Some person's the thief or the murderer or, or just some illicit, terrible type person that we would look at. The other person is the good old boy sitting in a Southern Baptist church that's got perfect attendance, but they're thinking they're going to heaven because they are good and self-righteous. You both are equally lost, both equally on your way to hell, both in need of the cleansing hand and work of God. So God saves us to sanctify us. He sets us apart for his holiness. And so we are called to live clean lives to the glory of God. Third description he talks about here is that that God glorifies us. He goes on to talk about how in verse 10 that Christ is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Immortality, he says. This is the promise that he gives us. See, Paul here, when he makes this statement, is agreeing with the words of Jesus recorded for us in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus there declared, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus, what are you talking about? People die all the time. He's talking about an eternal life. 
Yeah, we die physically in this world. That's part of this fall that we're involved in. That's the ramifications of the sin that Adam brought into this world. We were now, that we are now spiritually dead, born into this world. We may be physically alive, but every single person apart from Jesus is spiritually dead. And then Jesus comes in and through the light of the gospel transforms us and awakens us to a new life in him to die no more. And even after we physically die, there's an eternal life that we will experience. God is the one who gives eternal life to those he saves. He glorifies us. I I just want us to think about this and marvel over the greatness of God and our salvation for a minute. Think about who you were before Jesus. Think about what lifestyle you were in. Think about the transformation that's taken part in your life over whatever span of time it's been. Maybe it's been weeks or years or decades. What has God done in your life? Marvel over that for a moment. Praise God for what he's done for you. You see, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, he's rescued you from sin and death. And today he's making you holy. You say, I'm not really holy in my life. There's not a lot of difference sometimes. Well, you need to get in on what God wants to do in your life. You need to lean into him a little bit more. You need to allow him to continue to make you holy. Because that's what his desire is. That's what his goal is. That's what he's working toward. He assures you that you will never experience spiritual death. Theologically, we refer to these great truths as justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is the idea that God saved us from the penalty of sin. Jesus took that penalty upon himself. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and and he said those words, tetelestai, it is finished, he took the penalty of your sin and my sin and he satisfied it justified it. As God the Father exhausted his wrath against your sin and my sin, it was justified in Jesus as he absorbed the wrath of God that we should have bore. That's justification. And through salvation, we are exempt from the penalty of sin. Not because Jesus, or not because God the Father just said, I, I love them too much to, 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 to spank them or to, to punish them. I, I'm just going to abolish it. No, that's not what happens at all. God in his holiness cannot not deal with sin. You need to understand that. He's a good father. As a parent, am I a good father if I look past my children's mistakes? No. Do I at times? Yes, which is wrong. You see, when we do that, they learn that, eh, sins aren't really that big a deal with daddy. I can bat my eyes and do whatever I want to do, and he, maybe I can coerce him. We cannot coerce God. And so his holiness demands justice to be done towards sin. But God, in his infinite love for us, decided, I will take the punishment myself. I will be the scapegoat so that they can be set free. Justification means that we've escaped the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the idea that God is saving us from the power of sin. You see, when we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are not experientially and in actuality um, living in holiness. Every part of our life is not completely sanctified, right? That's a good place to nod your head yes or amen, right? All of us have sin, and all of us are sinning, and all of us will continue to sin. But we're on a trajectory in sanctification as we are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so in our life, it may be two steps forward, one step back, but we're ever so slightly and and slowly moving toward Christ-likeness in our life. And this is God working his power in our lives, making us saving us from the power of sin. We should not struggle with the sins today that we struggled with in years gone by. It's sort of like the the layers of an onion, if you will. You pull one layer off, and then there's another layer, and you pull that one off, there's another layer, and you pull that one. That's what God's doing in our lives. You may look at like a, a diamond in the rough. It's a diamond, right? But It's not beautiful yet because it needs to be polished and sharpened and cut and formed. That's what God is doing as he sanctifies us and helps us live above the power of sin. The theological concept of glorification means that God will save us from the presence of sin. I'm looking forward to this, are you not? 
That there's coming a day when I won't have to worry about sin. I won't have to worry about what my eyes are drawn to, what my desires are drawn to. I won't have to worry about where my feet want to take me at times that are contrary to the things of God and the, and the life of God that's in me. There's coming a day that that will be true. We should all look for that, long for that. I mean, think about it. There's going to be a day when we're in the presence of God, and because he has completely glorified us, we never have a thought that's contrary to the will of God in our life. Right now, it's hard for me to fathom that, right? Because even the good thoughts that I have are mired just a little bit by the evil. Am I the only evil person in here that has bad thoughts at times? You self-righteous bunch of Southern Baptists, I'll tell you what. You're looking at me like I'm a sinner. I know you just like I know me. We have them all the time. But there's coming a day when we will be glorified. And the presence of sin will be no more in our lives. So what we see here in this salvation is that through Christ we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved one day. All of this is the salvation of God. My, my, my eternal address is in Christ because of his redemption on the cross. But I am in the process of moving my life to that address in Christ as he has sanctified me. But there's also coming a day with that, 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 that mover is going to bring the trailer back and he's going to move me completely into the kingdom of God. I don't know if that, that illustration works with you, but that's what salvation is. It is a past, present, and future thing all wrapped up into one. Today, like Ephesus, we have all kinds of conflicting and competing ideologies. One of the prevalent worldviews that we could describe as moralistic, therapeutic deism, I know that's something we just throw around all the time, right? This is something that's out there in our culture. It's very prevalent. This is the belief that if people do good, if people feel good, if people believe in a God, whatever that may be, then surely there's a heavenly future awaiting them. You probably hear people, you not necessarily classified it as moral therapeutic deism, but this is the idea that a lot of people have. If I'm doing right, trying hard, if I feel good, if I'm trying to be good, and I believe in some sort of deity, if I'm sincere enough, then surely something good awaiting me in the future. The idea that we are actually bad, though, in this sort of uh, ideology, uh, the idea that we are in need of a Savior is not something that's looked favorable upon. In fact, it's seen as being ignorant. It's seen as being primitive. It's seen as being simply foolish. To that, I would say there's three main problems with this worldview. First, God is viewed as creator, but distant and uninterested in the affairs of life. You see, they're deists. Yeah, they say there's a God, but this God is aloof. This God is distant. This God created and then stepped away. That's not what we see in the Bible. What do we see in the Bible about God and his relationship with his creation? Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, there it speaks of God who's going to be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You see, Jesus, God the Son, came to dwell among men that's who the Bible declares God to be. He's a God who's present. He's a God who's there. He's a God who is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's intimately acquainted and involved in our lives, even those who are lost. He's seeking those who would put their faith in him. Second problem I would have with this worldview is, is that both history and scripture reveal that human nature is evil rather than good. I just I began this whole sermon just illustrating and, and laying the story out for D-Day. You see, there was a, a philosophical religious mindset in the early part of the 20th century that really thought that things are great. We kind of came through this enlightenment and, and many believers began to believe that, that we're kind of being ushered into this era where the gospel is absolutely changing the lives of people and culture and all this, and, and people are getting better. And then we had World War I, and we had World War II, and this ideology or this philosophy, I should say, crumbled in on itself because we came face to face with the reality that all of us are evil all the time. The Bible would bear witness to this. The Bible will tell us that nothing is good in mankind. Romans 3.10 speaks of this. And so salvation then can't come from within man or, or even without, outside of man. It has to come from God himself. The third problem I have is that salvation is not found in just any God. See, according to the Bible, salvation is found in Christ alone. 
No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus says. It's an exclusive message. And so we can't just be sincere enough in our quote-unquote faith. We have to be sincere and committed to the one whose name is above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. We must embrace the message of the gospel. We dare not shy away from it in our culture, a culture that's antagonistic toward it, because only the gospel can bring life and immortality to those who are spiritually dead. We guard the gospel as we embrace its message. Secondly, we guard the gospel as we endure in the work of the gospel. Look at the latter part of verse 8. Paul says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. All throughout this epistle, this letter here, suffering is a major theme of the apostle Paul. Here the apostle's explaining in these verses how we suffer. He's explaining why we suffer. He's talking about what we can expect in our suffering. And so let's just kind of unpack those questions. How are we to suffer? Paul says in verse 8, we do so by the power of God. So we don't suffer in our own strength. We don't suffer in our own abilities. We suffer in the power of God. We find strength through weakness. That's what the Bible teaches us, which is counterintuitive to anything that our mind would think. What do you mean you find strength in weakness? Right? What is that? That doesn't even make sense. I mean, when you can't open the pickle jar, who do you go to? Someone stronger than you. Sometimes it's your wife, which is crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Not in my household, though. I'll tell you what. They all come to me. But the Bible would lead us to believe that we find strength, not in our strength, we find strength as we are weak, looking up. I mean, the psalmist said this, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is kind of laying out this, what he calls a, a, a thorn in the flesh, and he's expressing how he struggled and wrestled with this, and, he, and he's praying to God, and he's asking God to remove it, and then he, he, just, he says this, Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is Paul saying he's strong because he is weak? No, he's saying I am, when I am weak, when I'm at my lowest, when I am absolutely uh, uh, drained of any sufficiency in and of myself, it's then that I have only one person to look to, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I can stand on my feet. Not because I'm standing, but because the power of God is reaching down and lifting me up and empowering me to do what he's called me to do. That's how we're to suffer in the power of God. Why do we suffer? We suffer because the gospel is worth it. I mean, think about it. The gospel is worth our suffering. Today in our Christian world, especially in this easy living America, we don't want to suffer anything. We want it easy. Man, if we get, if we get just, if our order gets messed up or delayed three minutes at the restaurant, how many of us as believers on a Sunday afternoon after we worshiped in church, we're, we're getting after the manager? Don't raise your hand because I'll expect you to alter later, right? We don't want to be uh, put out in any way. But that's not the suffering we're talking about here, man. The gospel is worth suffering, and there are people who suffer for the sake of the gospel in this world. For the apostle, he considered Jesus more desirable, more enjoyable, more beautiful than anything in this world. In fact, in Philippians 1.21, he talked about how he desired to, to leave this life and to go on with, with, to be with Jesus because in his mind, in his understanding, the Spirit of God had brought him to a place of sanctification where he realized that to die is gain. He was willing to lay his life as a, as, as a martyr for the sake of the gospel. He was willing to, 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 to relinquish anything and everything in his life, even his very life, because even in that it was gain. Paul was not a simple religious person. You see, religious people find God useful. They come to church 
to get what God may be able to give them. They come to church to get that warm, fuzzy feeling. I remember being that type of person. Sometimes I still am that type of person. I remember as a teenager setting, and, and I love the feeling that I had when the worship team was coming in, the choir was coming in, and they would crisscross in my home church, and they played this music, and it, and it was just, I don't know, it just resonated with my, with my heart, and I felt good in that setting. I literally, every Sunday, would long for that feeling that I would get. There was no life there. It was gone as soon as the choir started singing. I was longing for it the next time. Coming to church, going through these motions to feel good about the way I was. That's what religious people do. But a cross-bearing disciple finds Jesus beautiful. He beholds the glory of God in the gospel. When you do that, you can endure suffering like Paul suffered. Paul joyfully lived out his calling as a preacher. He talks about him being an apostle. He talks about himself being a teacher. And all of it, all of this, he was giving himself over to the cause of Christ. Why? Because he saw the beauty of Christ and enabled him to endure in this work. So when can we expect suffering? We can expect it, as Paul says, until that day, the day of Christ's return or the day of your death. Paul here publicly believed the Lord would be with him throughout whatever suffering he would experience until the final day of his life, whether the return of Jesus to this earth or the day he drew his last breath. So how do you today endure through such hardship? How do we endure? Go back with me to World War II. Many Americans during that era entered the military and were sent off to the battlefield. Obviously, the rest stayed home and supported the war effort that was being waged on two fronts, they endured much. Factories and farms were retrofitted for the wartime production. Here's something that we would just, we wouldn't believe if we had to experience it today, but most of the goods and materials, things like fuel and metal and rubber and food, were rationed within the, 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 the citizens within the country here in order to make sure that, that the soldiers and the seamen and the airmen and the marines had what they needed to continue to wage war. All Americans endured the hardships of war. They joined together in this work. They did so because they saw the beauty of their combined effort. And so it's today for us, as disciples of Christ, we will endure in the work of the gospel when we find beauty in Jesus, rest in his power, and become convinced of his lordship. It's only then that we will endure in the work. How do we guard the gospel? You endure in the work. You continue to do what you've been called to do. Thirdly, and I need to hurry here, emulate the practice. Man, that's the story of my life, isn't it not? Emulate the practice of the gospel. Look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is charging Timothy with. Follow the pattern, Timothy, that I've set. Follow the pattern, Timothy, that I've declared. What you've seen in me, go and do. Faith and love ought to be the the mantra of your life because they're the mantra of the life of Jesus. This word pattern here can be translated outlined. and, And so think of it this way. Like an architect might sketch a pattern before adding the details, or as an artist might, might, might sketch the design of a painting before going on to complete it, or as a writer may outline his paper before actually writing the manuscript, which is what I do every week. I'll outline the text, come up with the points that I believe the, the Scripture is leading us to, to implement in our own lives, and then I go back and I fill it all in in a manuscript, and I preach from a man- manuscript because I'm too shallow-minded to memorize everything but it's just the way it is. An outline. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's telling Timothy, here's the outline, bro. Here's how you're to live your life. Here's here's everything that needs to be involved in your life as a follower of Jesus, your life and ministry as a pastor. You're not to make up your own outline. You're not to add to it. You're not to take away from it. Here's the outline, Timothy. This is what you're to do. As I've taught you, you go teach this to others. There was and there is no other gospel than that which Paul laid out to this young man. And so what was true of Timothy is equally true of us today. 
The gospel found in the Bible is the gospel we are to preach and teach today. We cannot and we must not go and and add to the gospel, take away from the gospel the things that aren't as palatable to others as as they should be. We can't make it more uh, appealing to people. Preach it for as, as it is. You know, we, we, we may apply its implications in various ways to people in our own generation, but we dare not adjust the message of the gospel. So Paul here sets, sets the theological parameters for the preaching. But he was just as concerned, hear, hear this, he's just as concerned with the manner in which it is declared. Orthodoxy must line up, let me say it this way, orthopraxy must line up with orthodoxy. What I believe must line up with what I, how I behave and what I do, and what I do and what I practice must line up with what I believe. The attitude with which Timothy has main, maintained his orthodoxy was nearly as important as the orthodoxy itself, in other words. And so faith and love, Paul declares here, are the practices of the gospel. As God's children by faith, Think about this. We believe his word, that he is able, like Paul says here, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to us. And so our faith secures us. It, it anchors us while the ways of culture push against our beliefs and practices. And we're living in that day. People, Christians have always lived in that day. Hear, hear me for a second. Let's not, be, let's not succumb ourselves to this mindset that it's never been this way before that this is the worst it's ever been in the history of of Christianity, that's not true at all. They're not cutting your heads off in America. They may have taken the Bible out of school, and and they might have legalized abortion, and and things that we as a believer and and Bible-believing people may say, that's an affront to the the person of God and the work of God, but they're not cutting our heads. This is not as bad as it could be, but it's still bad. So we just need to realize this is where we live. This is not our home. We're passing through. We're simply sojourners. But we need to practice faith and love. Faith secures us. Faith anchors us. Why are we sometimes then so surprised to see our culture becoming more and more depraved? I said it's not as bad as it's been in history, but it's getting worse. I'm 41 years old. I've seen it, I've seen it become more depraved in my 41 years. If you're 80 plus, you've seen a whole lot more than I've seen. And my children, your children, will see even worse things. So how and why are we surprised at these things? Why, why are we overwhelmed by the rise of evil? It shouldn't shock us, but why is it? I would say this, rather than being shocked and oftentimes retreating from an evil culture, let us love and lean into it. Let's love the people in our culture and lean into it. Our practice ought not to be building up walls and insulating ourselves from the world. What our practice as a follower of Jesus should be is to tear down walls and season the culture. What do you mean by that? You talking about that wall on the Mexican border? Not at all am I talking about that, okay? I'm not here to talk about political things. I'm saying this. As a follower of Jesus, do you build up walls in your own life and isolate and insulate yourself from the world? See, the Bible would tell us to be in the world, but not of the world. Unless you're going to live in a convene somewhere, then you are going to be in the world. So you might as well be seasoned, a person who can season it, salt and light, that can bring the, the, the work of God, the gospel, into the lives of people who desperately need it. We need to be that in this evil generation. Think of it this way. It's in the darkest of the night that the light shines the brightest and shines the furthest. So go be that light. Don't build a wall up. Don't put a basket over your light so that only you and the few people around you can experience the goodness of that light. No, go shine yourself in a dark world. When I got home, I began to see, because I was kind of out of touch with reality as far as anything on social media while I was away, which was great. It was awesome. Felt weird at first because you're like a, a drug addicted person getting off. You're like, I gotta have that fixed. The, I gotta be connected to the world through social media or whatever. But after a couple of days, like, this is pretty good. I don't get in texts every five seconds in my life. I'm not seeing all these things that really don't matter in, 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 at all to me. But I, I saw this when I got back. I saw that our middle school put up a display honoring National Pride Month. 
one of the flags displayed on that board, I saw the picture, was that of the LGBTQ community. Now, obviously, as a follower of Jesus, I would never condone that, right? I personally, as a dad, don't believe that's the proper place for such things. Am I concerned about it? Sure. I got a daughter that will be in the middle school in two years. Am I surprised? Not at all. This is the world we live in. And so what is this for me as a dad? What is this for me and my wife as parents? What is this for me as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor in our community? It's an opportunity to engage in conversation, people in our community and my own children. Right? So rather than build up the wall, let's keep the wall down and engage the conversation with our community. This is an opportunity to speak truth where there's lies. It's an opportunity to hold up the the person of God and and talk about how good God wants to be in us and for us rather than than isolate and just remove ourselves from the situation. You see, I'm just as concerned about the response of some believers to this situation as I am the situation itself. Because some believers, I've read on some of the, the boards, say, you know what, this is why we need to pull out. This is why we need to put more bricks in that wall. This is why we need to just retreat, retreat, retreat. I would say that is a lie from hell, and we need to engage, engage, engage. Two of you are awesome. I love you. (laughs) I I knew this statement would would not settle well with someone. That's fine. This is my opinion. This is, I believe, where the gospel would lead us. In faith and love, we need to engage our community. You say, faith, what do you mean? That means I believe God is sovereign enough to watch over my children in a dark, evil world. Number one, they're not my children. They're God's children. I'm simply a steward managing them, trying to raise them up as best as I can. But they're not mine. And so if I'm going to be a man of faith who believes that Jesus can save and sanctify me, I need to be a man of God who believes that Jesus can save and sanctify my children, even in a hostile generation. Love. That means is, it, it, even as detestable as I believe that lifestyle is, and what it, you know, I just look at it and I think, why? It doesn't even make sense, right? But th- it's not even just that. I was on a boat this past week with a bunch of heathens, drinking, getting drunk all the time. I look at that, and they're like the next morning, like, oh, I drank too much last night. I, I feel so awful. I'm like, I drank water. I feel great. I mean, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, I just don't understand it, Right? But I've got my own sinful issues that I've got to deal with, so let's not just, I'm not judging here what they are. But in love, I know the gospel, the gospel has transformed my life. I want to lean into them rather than pull away. How can they ever know truth if I don't lean in and say, here's the gospel. Here, here's what Jesus has done for my life. He's absolutely transformed me. If you knew who I was before from where I am now, you would be amazed. And I want to share this with you. That's what Paul is trying to encourage Timothy here. A young, timid guy. He's saying, lean in, believe God, trust God, have faith in God, love God, love people, allow the gospel to transform you, believe him to transform others, and that's what we need to do today in our own community. See, we we guard the gospel as we emulate the practice of the gospel, faith and love. Paul embraced this message. He believed it to be the power of God for salvation. He endured in the work of the gospel. He was called by God to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel. And and so as a preacher, he was one who heralded the gospel in whatever setting he found himself in. It's not just that he was standing in a pulpit setting and and declaring, thus saith the Lord. That happened, yes. But when he's sitting around, let's just say a coffee shop, because that's kind of where we would be today, and, and he's having conversation with someone, he's going to go the gospel with them. He was also an apostle. He saw himself as one who was sent out. Now, obviously, this is a particular calling for him, but the the concept is this. He's been sent out by God. We could look at it as this for us. I'm not an apostle in the biblical sense, but I have been sent out, and so have you. We are missionaries where we live, work, and play. He also said, I'm a teacher. I'm going to do everything to build the word of God into the people of God. I'm going to disciple. I'm going to make disciples. That's what my calling is. That's what I'm to do. Timothy, you're to do the same as well. So is that true of you and is that true of me today? Are you preaching the gospel where you live, work, and play? Are you living as a missionary, one who's sent out by God? Are you teaching God's word to others, building the gospel into their lives? This is how we guard that good deposit that God's placed within us. We don't lose, or we don't, 
We don't win by building up big defensive walls and retreating. We win by being on offense. I don't have time to go into a man, I really don't have time, but this would be a great illustration or a great athletic illustration here, but you don't ever win a ball game playing defense at the end of the game. You play and you win by being on offense. Let's be on offense. Amen. Lord Jesus, this morning. This passage is so rich. And I pray that your spirit has taken it and just pressed upon our hearts this morning. God, that our ears have been opened, that we've been able to hear what the spirit would say to the church. And our heart has been willing to receive and follow. God, may we not be a people who are playing defense, building up walls in our lives, scared of what might happen, but God, give us courage and boldness and faith. It's all said and done. It's not our work anyway. It's your work. There's nothing we can do. God, help us to just rest in you, to to come to the end of ourselves and say, God, I just can't do it myself. I don't want to do it myself. And so in my weakness, be strong for me. God, as a church, I pray that we would never have this mindset that we're just a, a small little country church in, in Powhatan, Virginia. Oh, God, we are a, a mighty force for the kingdom of God. My prayer every day for us is that you would give us favor in this community. God, that starts as we individually we guard this gospel, this good deposit in our lives, as we embrace it, endure in it, and emulate it where we live, where we work, and where we play, using the bridges of the relationships that we have to see people come to know Jesus. God, may we never be satisfied with religion just wanting to feel good. This morning, this this message may really offend some people. and It's not been my goal at all. You know that, Lord. I might have stepped on some toes. Probably needed to be stepped on. I pray that God has a church. be able to see the goodness and the beauty of Jesus fresh and anew that it would transform our lives transform our church begin to transform our culture God we could riot outside schools because of what may or may not take place in them that's not going to change our culture but me in faith praying serving and loving my community, that'll change my community. So help us to have that heart. This morning, if there's a man, woman, teenager, child, never put their faith in Jesus, I pray this morning this would be the day for them. God, that we'd be able to celebrate with them as they follow through in baptism, much like Charlie just a few weeks ago. believers, God, I pray that we'd put our yes on the table. So we sing, help us to respond in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.